0: Welcome to First Baptist Church, and would you please turn with me in your Bibles today to one Corinthians chapter thirteen, verse four. One Corinthians chapter thirteen, verse four. And in last week's sermon, we learned that spiritual gifts are a most excellent way. After all, when spiritual gifts are biblically exercised, some truly amazing things happen. Namely, God is glorified, the church. The body is edified, good triumphs over evil, and believers live full or abundant lives, which is the theme of the series that we've been engaged in, which is fullness of life. And so in light of these wonderful results, spiritual gifts are truly a most excellent way. However, while spiritual gifts are in fact a most excellent way, spiritual gifts are not the most excellent way. That came to light last week when the Apostle Paul gave us a mathematical formula, right? And his formula was this. He said, spiritual gifts plus lovelessness equals zero. Because when you exercise spiritual gifts without love, you miss the main point. You miss the point altogether. The point of spiritual gifts is to make God known, and God is love. And so you cannot make God known through the exercise of spiritual gifts without love. Love It completely misses the point. And so that's why Paul says in the second half of 1 Corinthians 12.31, and now after all this discussion about spiritual gifts in chapter 12, I will show you a still more excellent way. And that way that was even more excellent than spiritual gifts is the way of love. Agape love, which we defined as the steady intention of the will to another's highest good. The steady intention of the will to another's highest good. It is other-centered, not self-centered. And this kind of love has five aspects to it. First of all, agape love is volitional, meaning that it is a matter of the will. It is a choice that we make regardless of how we feel. So love is not something you fall into or fall out of. It is a choice that we make. Secondly, it is unconditional, meaning it is not based on whether we view the recipient to be worthy or not, because at the end of the day, all of us are unworthy of God's love. Next, it is sacrificial, meaning that it costs something to love. We put aside our own wants and wishes for the good of someone else. It is sacrificial. And then it is practical. We'll talk more about this in a few minutes, but it is not just about words. It's not about feelings or sentiment. It is about deeds. We act in love. And then lastly, it's evidential. It demonstrates, it gives evidence to the fact that God's Spirit lives inside of us. On well, in today's text, the Apostle Paul is going to take the light of agape love, and he's gonna put it through a prism. Y'all remember prisms from like junior high science class? Cool stuff, cool stuff. A prism is a shape that refracts or separates white light into its spectrum of colors. Maybe some of you have like a sun catcher on your uh, window, and uh, the light comes through, and a rainbow results. A beam of light goes in, a rainbow comes out, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 4 through 7. The beam of light is God's agape love, and the rainbow that comes out is 15 different colors or hues. And these 15 different colors or hues, they give us this beautiful illustration of what this kind of love is like. And so would you please stand to your feet with me? We're going to read this passage, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. As this beam of light comes into the prism, it says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Would you please pause with me for a moment of prayer? Father, again, it's a short passage, but it is so packed with depth and meaning, and it is so packed with beauty as we get to see some, something of who you are, Through these characteristics of love, and then in the same fashion, something of what we are supposed to be as people of God. So God, would you speak to us this morning, And, and if there's any sense that, yeah, we've been there, done that, we know this passage, God, would you open our eyes and help us to see it afresh and anew? And God, I pray for your help this morning, may you put your words in my mouth, and may all of us, including myself, be doers of the word and not hearers only. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So again, what we have here in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, the Apostle Paul shines this white light of agape love through a prism, and that light, that prism gives birth to a wonderful spectrum of colors, 15 of them that reveal the true nature of agape love. And so as we begin, let's take a look at the passage as a whole. Let's look at it maybe again through fresh eyes, where we see that love is patient, kind, "...does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude, does not insist on its own way, is not irritable or resentful, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, it rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things..." And endures all things, which is quite the rainbow, isn't it? And when you think about the breadth of all that agape love entails. Well, the first thing that's important to note about this list is that in the Greek, all of these words are verbs. That doesn't come through quite as clearly in the English. But in the Greek, all of these are verbs, meaning that they are actions, which is very consistent with that fourth quality of agape love that we highlighted earlier. That agape love is practical, meaning it is given expression through deeds, just as it says in 1 John 3.18, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed. And in truth, not through mushy vagueness or sentimentality, but through action. Author Bob Goff, he captured this idea in the title of a book that he wrote, which is Love Does... And I think that's so appropriate and perfect for this passage. Rather than love is fill in the blank, love does. Reminding us again that love is not a feeling, it is an action as evidenced by the fact that these 15 colors are all verbs in the Greek. Now, the first two of these colors that come through the prism, patient and kind. Does that ring a bell for anyone? Does it ring a bell? And why might it ring a bell? Because in our study of the fruits of the Spirit, right, the fruit of the Spirit is, and, and okay, so we, we encountered patience and kindness in our study of the fruit of the Spirit. So we're not going to go over those again, if you would like. I'd, I'd encourage you to go back and to find those sermons from a few weeks back and to go over those again. But instead, today, we're going to move on to things that we haven't yet covered. Um, we're going to look at four. Love does not envy, love does not boast, it is not arrogant, it is not rude. And then next week we'll cover um, the blue boxes. It does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And then in two weeks, we'll finish it out with love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So today, um, let's go back to our prism, and let's look at those first four green boxes. And the very first of them is love does not envy love does not envy. The Greek word translated here as envy is zelao, from which we get our word zealous or zeal, all right? And it is a passionate desire for something. Now, that could be good or bad, am I right? To have a passionate desire for something, I believe that God intends for all of His children to be zealous, to be passionate in their desire. In fact, um, just a couple weeks ago, and well, actually last week, in First Corinthians twelve thirty-one, the Apostle Paul said, "But earnestly desire that's zelao the higher gifts." Clearly, that's a good thing. He's even encouraging us to be people of zeal. But as we know, zeal can have a dark side, right? an envious side, in which there is an earnest desire for what someone else has, resulting in jealousy and resentment. And truly, this kind of earnest desire is ungodly, and it is unloving. It is not concerned with the good of another, but with our own selfish desires. Now, At this point, it would be good for us to consider the context of our passage and to ask the question All right, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, book of 1 Corinthians, Apostle Paul is writing to this church at Corinth. Question In what sense was envy present in Corinth? In what sense was envy present in Corinth? Well, you'll remember that the Corinthians had elevated certain spiritual gifts above others, especially the gift of tongues, and this in and of itself created this envious environment and created the haves and the have-nots, those who spoke in tongues and those who did not. And there was this jealousy, this envy on the part of those who did not speak in tongues as you know, you were kind of viewed to have arrived if you were a tongue speaker. And so this jealousy, the hearts became resentful and unloving in the church in Corinth. And Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 3.3 3, when he says, For you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Which is quite ironic, isn't it? The, the, the fact that they were talking about spiritual gifts, they were elevating spiritual gifts, and Paul says no, 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 no. The way that you're operating is truly in a fleshly, human way. They most certainly were acting in the flesh when they were envious of one another. And church, make no mistake, envy is one of Satan's most effective weapons. Envy Is one of Satan's most effective, and he uses it with regularity and an effort to sabotage God's work and God's people. We can trace a theme of envy throughout the scriptures. For example, it was out of envy that Eve took the fruit in the garden, was it not? What was what was her zeal? What did she want? What was her passionate desire? To be like God. She wanted that for herself. She was envious of God. It was out of envy. It was out of envy that, that Cain murdered his brother Abel. He was jealous of the approval that God had given to Abel and his sacrifice. It was out of envy that Joseph's brothers attacked him, threw him into a pit, and sold him into slavery. And it was out of envy that the religious leaders had Jesus put to death on the cross. Matthew 27 18. It says it this way. It says, "For he, Jesus, knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up." I guess I'd never really caught that before. You know, there in my mind, there are probably a lot of possible reasons that the religious leaders got rid of Jesus. But here, it says that Jesus knew it was out of envy reminding us again of just what a powerful and destructive force envy can be as it is a tool in the hands of the enemy. And Proverbs 27, verse 4 says, Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Answer, no one. Envy is even stronger than wrath and anger and left unchecked. It can swallow us and lead us to do truly horrible things. And James addressed this when he wrote in James chapter 3, verse 14, he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and what does he even call it? Demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. James equates jealousy with the demonic. And this was, in fact, the case at the church in Corinth. Their lovelessness was evidenced by their envy. Well, we asked the question of the Corinthians. It would be appropriate for us to ask the same question of ourselves, church, In what sense is envy present in your life? It's not a comfortable question, is it? I've shared this with you before. I'm going to keep sharing it with you until I get victory over it because I'm not there yet. I get easily and quickly jealous of other pastors and ministries, Um, especially when I turn on the TV you know, and you see certain ministries and pastors and things that are going on, and boy, something just really quickly gets me riled up, and it's envy, it's jealousy, it is not loving, it is not God. It's about me and not others, and this is something that's a problem for me. And then that second question, which I have to ask myself, because I know it's right how has this hindered your spiritual growth and your intimacy with God? Because it does. Would you today, as I need to, confess and repent and be set free of the sin of envy? So, as we put 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through the prism, what comes out, first of all, is the light love does not envy. Next, the second green box in our text love does not boast. Love does not boast. That word boast comes from the Greek perperuomai, which admittedly sounds a lot like pepperoni, (laughs) which is very timely because FBC Kids last week, they had a big pizza party, and you all know about my pizza last weekend. We don't need to go into that. So back to the Greek perperuomai, which means to brag about oneself to brag about oneself. This is the other side of envy. These two are intimately related. And what I mean by it is this. When we are envious, we resent what someone else has. We wish we had it. We want it for ourselves. We resent what someone else has. But when we are boastful, we actually want someone to resent what we have. Right? When we are boastful, we want someone to resent what we have. And clearly... That's not love. This is not the steady intention of the will to another's highest good. It is, in fact, a desire to elevate ourselves over someone else. And so as we consider the context of today's passage, we once again ask the question, in what sense was boasting present in Corinth? Well, let me count the ways, because there were so many of them. First of all, they boasted about which spiritual leader they followed. Some followed Paul, some followed Apollos, and so on and so forth. They boasted about their perceived knowledge and wisdom. They boasted about their spiritual gifts. Boasting, boasting, boasting. And so Paul puts them in their place in 128 when he says to these boastful Corinthians, he says, In essence, Paul is saying, you boastful Corinthians, knock it off. Because in and of yourselves, you don't have a thing to boast about. You were low and despised and actually deserving of God's wrath until he mercifully and wonderfully saved you. The only thing that you have to boast about is Jesus. And even Jesus himself was not boastful. Uh, Commentator David Pryor, he said this, he said, Love does not boast. Indeed, Jesus never seemed at all interested in gaining recognition, let alone in demanding his rights. He left his reputation and his results completely in the hands of God. He was free not to insist on his own way, entrusting himself to the one who judges justly, particularly when facing rejection. And humiliation. Think about this. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the name that is above all names, the only one who truly has a reason to boast, wasn't boastful because he is love. And so, as we put the light of love through the prism, we encounter these first two colors love does not envy, love does not boast. The third green box in our passage. It is not arrogant. It is not arrogant. Related to boasting, but slightly different. Love is not arrogant. It literally means to be puffed up, inflated with our own importance. Kind of like this guy. We've used this slide before, but I think it's perfect, right? Well, what was it that made the Corinthians puffed up as we look again at our context and what sense was arrogance present in Corinth? As we mentioned earlier, the Corinthians took great pride in their knowledge. Oh, they loved knowledge. Remember in that culture too in Corinth, they would have these orators who would come and they would uh, it was like a rock concert for them. They would sell out these venues where people would come and philosophers would talk and they would speak and the people just ate it up and they gained in knowledge and they, they grew so puffed up in their knowledge and that carried over into the church. And so people in the churches, they gained in knowledge. They viewed themselves to be exceedingly knowledgeable. And sadly, it was their knowledge, their being puffed up that made them arrogant. Just as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8.1, he said, this knowledge, it puffs up, but love, in contrast, love builds up. His point is that just as spiritual gifts plus lovelessness equals zero, so knowledge plus lovelessness equals zero. First Baptist Church This is an important point of application for us. We're a church that loves knowledge. We're a church that loves to dig into the word and to grow in our understanding, in our sound doctrine. And that is right and that is good, but it is also dangerous. Because if it stops there, we become nothing more than that fish, puffed up, inflated, puffed up. We must be loving and not just knowledgeable. Paul is so passionate about confronting their arrogance that he says in chapter 4, verse 18, he says, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power or lack thereof. Were you ever told when you're a kid, wait till your father gets home? This is wait till Paul gets to Corinth where he intends to address their arrogance in person, because such arrogance has no place in the body of Christ. It is not loving. Such arrogance was never found in Christ himself. Rather, it says in Philippians 2, um, this is from the message, kind of a fresh take on it, it says, Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. and Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. All of which reminds us that as we put love through the prism, we see these first three colors of the rainbow. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not arrogant. Fourth and final of our green boxes in verse 5. Love is not rude. Love is not rude. Really timely words for our culture. We live in such a rude culture To be rude means to behave indecently or disgracefully. Not caring enough about others to exercise decorum or manners. Being insensitive and acting in ways that are careless and overbearing or crude. And so we consider the context of our passage once again, asking the question, in what sense was rudeness evident at the church in Corinth. And I believe we get a really disturbing snapshot of this in chapter 11, verse 20. Paul's describing some rudeness that was going on. He says, you Corinthians, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. All right, so here's the situation. In, in that time and culture, the Lord's Supper was really part of a larger meal. Ironically, do you know what the name of the meal was? The Love Feast. The Love Feast. But instead of being an expression of love, it became an expression of rudeness. Here's what was going on. Some people would arrive early. Inevitably, it was the people who had resources. They didn't have to work as long. They didn't have the hindrances that those who were poor had. And so they would show up early, and they would eat all the food. Rich people would show up early and eat all the food. So what did that mean for those who were poor when they showed up? Nothing to eat. Some love feast, right? And then, not only was there a food problem, there was an alcohol problem. People were getting drunk at communion, at the Lord's Supper. And again, it was always the poor who were on the losing end of this. Now, we've got our own problems here at First Baptist, right? But we don't have this, at least, which is wonderful. Um, and the fact that the Corinthians, uh, the other side of rudeness for them is what they, they would try to actually outdo one another in worship. Their, their worship became like a contest to see who could draw the most attention to themselves. And so uh, whether it was tongues or prophecy, they would talk over and past one another in this escalating competition to demonstrate their spirituality. And it was rude. In contrast, commentator William Barclay, he said, There is a graciousness in Christian love which never forgets that courtesy and tact and politeness are lovely things. And again, exceedingly, exceedingly rare in our culture. And church, can I just say, let us not become desensitized to rudeness. Now, let's be straight about something. The message of the gospel is offensive. True? It's always going to be offensive. The whole idea from the very beginning to say, A, that there is a God who created the heavens and the earth. That's offensive to some, because if there's a God, then they're accountable. That's why evolution is such a big deal, because people don't want to acknowledge that there is a God. But secondly, the whole idea that we cannot save ourselves, that we are not inherently good, but that we are inherently sinful and in need of a Savior and can only be saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, that is offensive. It's viewed as narrow and unloving. And when you call out certain sins, things that the Bible clearly says, that is rebellion against God. That's not the way God designed us. That's not right. It's viewed as narrow and unloving. Nothing we can do about that. Nothing we can do about that. That's the message. The message of the gospel is offensive. However, while the message of the gospel is offensive, the messenger must never be. The messenger must never be, and I fear that all too often we can practice self-righteous rudeness where it is not only the message that is offensive, but the messenger also, and we puff ourselves up with our knowledge, and we want to be right, and we want to win the argument, and we, come a, we don't act any different than the world. In contrast, it says in 1 Peter 2.15, but in your hearts... Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect the way that Jesus did it to the very end, even while he was hanging on a cross with love that is not rude. So as we put the the light of love through a prism The result is a rainbow of colors. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Let's wrap things up today with application and ask the question, how should we then live? It's it's interesting that the four characteristics of love that we're addressing today, they're, they're all in the negative, aren't they? Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Not, 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 not. And so for application this morning, I think it might be helpful for us to consider, okay, that's what love is not. What is the antidote, the solution for each one of those negatives? Now, ultimately, as we know in our study of um, spiritual fruit, the ultimate antidote is the Holy Spirit living inside of us and bearing fruit through us. But there are things that we are able to do to position ourselves better for that in each one of these areas. For example, in regard to envy, in regard to envy, one of the things that we can do is the antidote. Diligently, daily, practice the spiritual discipline of gratitude. Diligently, daily practice, the spiritual discipline of gratitude. You know, it's, it's, it's difficult to be envious of others and what they have when we are focused on the innumerable blessings that we have received from God. You can't be envious and thankful at the same time. Those two things are incompatible And so when you are intentional about practicing gratitude and daily listing and meditating on the many, many ways that God has been so good to you, the ways that God has showed up for you, ultimately the fact that God created you and he saved you, envy just kind of has a way of fading away at that point. I believe this is actually an act of spiritual warfare when we do this. James 1.16, it tells us, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Everything good in our life comes from God. And if you say, you know what? I, I'm a hard worker. I earned this. Well, who gave you the ability to work hard in the first place? Who gave you your brain? Who gave you the health? Who gave you the resources? Who gave you, now, good for you of being a good steward of those things, but at the end of the day, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, far beyond what we deserve. The antidote to envy is to diligently and daily practice the spiritual discipline of gratitude. Next, the antidote for boasting. The antidote for, antidote for boasting is go out of your way, to tell others about the greatness of your God. In essence, boast in Him. Boast about His goodness. Boast about answered prayer. Boast about what God has done. In 1 Corinthians 1.31, So as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If we fill our conversations, beginning in the home. Beginning in the home with our families of the greatness of our God, reflecting, talking about it, bragging about God, highlighting what He has done, there's no room for us to even attempt to talk about our greatness. Nor will we want to. It'll seem really trivial and silly at that point. Because a life that is focused on boasting in the Lord quickly realizes that we have nothing to boast about. Next, the antidote for arrogance. Remember from where you've come. Remember from where you've come, which means preaching the gospel to yourself on a daily basis. For when we are reminded of where we would be without God's grace and where we would be without His provision of a Savior, there's no room for pride or arrogance at that point. Our salvation, church, please be reminded, and this is why we need to preach the gospel daily to ourselves. Our salvation is not based on anything we have done. It is all of God and His grace and His mercy. William Barclay said, True love will always be far more impressed with its own unworthiness than its own merit. Some people confer their love with the idea that they are conferring a favor, but the real lover cannot ever get over the wonder that he is loved. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. One of my favorite concepts in the Bible. Those who are poor in spirit are those who recognize that they're spiritually bankrupt. They have nothing to contribute to their salvation. And so as a result of that, those who are poor in spirit are truly humble, teachable, certainly not arrogant. Lastly, the antidote for rudeness is to regularly ask for feedback. Now I'll admit, this one's scary. This is, this is risk-taking, but powerful, but powerful. Those who are truly serious about spiritual growth and maturity will make this a priority. They will actually seek out people, trusted friends, and ask them to give feedback on how they're doing. How am I doing with other people? Do I, am I coming across boastful? Am I coming across rude? Am I coming across insensitive? How can I do better? Help me to grow in how I interact with people so that I will never be perceived as rude, but as humble and teachable and loving like Jesus. But it takes the willingness to take the risk and to ask the question. I had a wonderful conversation recently with someone who wanted feedback. They asked me this question, it was awesome doesn't happen enough. And we had this wonderful time together of talking about growth and love and maturity and how to engage socially in a manner that is edifying and loving like Jesus. When was the last time you asked someone for feedback like that? Do you care enough about loving others to take this step? So, Antidotes to these opposites of love. The antidote to envy is diligent daily, a practice, the spiritual discipline of gratitude. The antidote to boasting, go out of your way to tell others about the greatness of your God. And arrogance, remember from where you have come and rudeness, regularly ask for feedback. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, it'd be an interesting exercise for us to take the word love out of this passage and to simply have a blank and to ask ourselves the question, could we put our own names in that blank? Could I say that Chad is not boastful? Chad is not envious? Chad is not arrogant. Chad is not rude. And God, where we feel that prick of the Holy Spirit on our hearts, the conviction in various areas in that evaluation, God, may we not ignore that. But may we obey that. And may we confess it and repent of it and be cleansed, and to be made new, that we might be unhindered conduits of your love to others. God, I thank you for this church and its desire for knowledge. God, may we never, ever, ever become puffed up, but God, may we be loving to the end, just like Jesus was. I pray that this community would not know us for our doctrine, but they would know us for our love because it is by our love your word tells us that they will know that we are your disciples. Make it so, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand together as we sing?